So welcome everybody. I'm Dada Veda Pragyananda, and this is the Prout Rev podcast. And this is a podcast in which we look at current issues, current events from the perspective of Prout. And Prout is the progressive utilization theory, and it's an alternative economic and social outlook, which is an alternative to capitalism and communism. And it was first proposed by an Indian philosopher, P.R. Sarkar. And so today, we're going to look at the issue of universal basic income, UBI. Because I know that I have some friends who said, wow, universal basic income, is this, this is, sounds like Proud, because Proud also talks about how we can provide for the minimum requirements of people. And so some people say, wow, it's, but I've looked at it and I have some questions about it. And I'd like to introduce some of my guests who are also going to go into this. We have Sri Raksha Mohan from Portland, Oregon, who is a, a software developer. And we has an MA, a master's in um, computer science. And then my other guest, and I'm really happy to have both guests here, is, is Michael Zimmerman of Nashville, um, Tennessee. And he's retired, but he was, he was a CPA. He's an economist. He has a master's in in economics, and he has a good perspective on a lot of these, especially current economic issues. So I'm really happy to have them here with me. And first, I think I will turn it over to Sri Raksha because she has um, looked at this, especially from the perspective of Proud, and, and she has some observations to make about it. So Sri Raksha, can you um, kick it off now? Thank you, Dada. So about universal basic income, uh, two things come to mind, and I think they have to be emphasized. First of all, everyone has a right to decent livelihood and a basic standard of living. This is irrefutable, and we should all work towards it. No one opposes this fundamental requirement for a good life, and even those who oppose UBI do not oppose a right to livelihood. But should this be, should this right be guaranteed by other socioeconomic measures, or should it be guaranteed by UBI? This is something uh, we, we would like to think deeply about. Secondly, universal basic income does not have the concept of productivity ingrained in it. It is simply money distributed to everybody without any expectation or precondition. So there is money given to people and money goes into the market, which enables people to buy goods and services with no expectations of there being any productivity in exchange. So we are indirectly saying production of goods and services is the job of the capitalists, while we create a huge class of passive consumers. Um, this, in my opinion, indirectly enables capitalism. Um, and to me, that is a huge problem right there enabling capitalists to call the shots in an economy and rest of the people who collect UBI are not actively participating in the economy. Essentially with UBI, the current system of non-inclusion of common people in the process of production is made worse. And this is a system in which means of production and distribution are controlled by a few. So UBI doesn't, uh, doesn't address the problems like widening wealth gap, uh, it does not hold the people who create this wealth gap accountable. And U UBI is not changing the system, basically, in my observation. And if we, co if we closely observe from where this push for universal basic 
income is coming, we see that proponents of UBI are these big businessmen within the tech industry like Elon Musk and politicians are jumping on the UBI bandwagon too and running their political campaigns on this issue um, without ever giving a thought of what is what its overall effect would be on the economy. And proponents of UBI, especially as a person who works in the tech industry, I've made proponents of UBI make this flawed but very believable argument that artificial intelligence and automation will take away jobs, at which point only UBI can save humanity. They've been making this argument for many decades now, probably from when the first robot was invented, but AI has not taken over the world yet. We need humans to do a lot of jobs that artificial intelligence cannot do itself. And there are a lot of artificial intelligence problems to solve uh, from a technical perspective. So we are not there yet. And someday these same people who make an argument for uh, jobs being taken away by AI and automation, they may wake up and decide that UBI is no longer working. So then what do we do? To me, it is hard to take them seriously. Giving out money, without a prerequisite, without a precondition is unsustainable. And I believe it has economic consequences, uh, which the other hosts of the podcasts will discuss. But on a broader level, um, I want to also touch upon what UBI does to human potential and human capability to learn, innovate, and work. Uh, on a broader level, UBI does not guarantee jobs. And job guarantee is like a deeper commitment from an individual to be participating and contributing to the society. If you ask any child, any five-year-old child, what she wants to do when she grow up, grows up, we often hear answers such as, I want to be a doctor, I want to go to space, I want to do, I want to do art, I want to be a musician, and so on. No child would ever say, I want to grow up and collect UBI. So I think this shows that we all have an urge to make the best use of a human potential and contribute to society in meaningful ways. A job is what makes people part of a broader social productive process. Um, unlike jobs, UBI does not create opportunities for people to make the best of their potential skills and talent. Uh, one may have to ask the question, what is the use of all the money in the world when people cannot invest that money in good education or in a good system that enables them to thrive as artists or teachers or whatever else they want to do? So sure, UBI puts money into the banks of people and makes lives better. Um, but in my opinion, it doesn't, doesn't sort of build a socially sustainable infrastructure which enables people to find deeper fulfillment. And um, to be, to be clear, you're not saying that everyone needs to work to have their minimum requirements met. There are some people who cannot participate in the workforce even if they wish to. Um, every society has old people, kids, disabled people, mothers who care for young babies at home, which is probably one of the toughest jobs in the world. No one expects all these people to earn wages by working at a job. There are these groups of people who need some assistance um, from the government, and they should be targeted and supported through measures like universal childcare, elder care, or other means. But should UBI be universally declared and given to everyone is a question we need to answer because 
UBI diverts the money away from these targeted support programs for people in real need of help. And it gives people money, people who may not even need the money, it puts money into their hands. So the purpose of UBI, which um, presumably is to help people in need, that, that purpose is defeated when money is diverted away from people in actual need or, or, or diverted away from targeted support programs and universally declaring an in income, which everyone is eligible to collect is also injustice in many ways because um, it sets a very low expectation for socioeconomic progress in my opinion. So UBI may be a temporary, temporary relief measure but um, it clearly does not contribute to systems change, in my opinion. And um, um, I would like to see what Dada Veda and Michael had to say about this. Okay, so exactly. I think you really, um, you really uh, went into the heart of the problems. And, and what I'd like to do, first of all, you mentioned something very important, that it's not systems change. UBI is something within capitalism. Within capitalism, they have these problems, and then now people are propo proposing it, but nobody's proposing an alternative. So we're looking at it from the perspective of Proud, which is really an alternative system. And that's why I really want to, um, especially for people who are a little bit knowledgeable about the system and think that UBI is part of it, let's listen to what the founder has to say directly about this. He really talks to this issue. He says, society has a responsibility to meet the minimum requirements of every individual. But if it arranges food and builds a house for everyone under the impetus of this responsibility, individual initiative is retarded. People will become lethargic. So, and then he said also something interesting too. Society has to make arrangements so that people in exchange for their labor, according to their capacity, which is something you touched on, can earn the money they require to purchase the minimum requirements. In order to raise the, the level of standard of living, the best policy is to increase their purchasing capacity. So this is clearly, um, you know, like when a system is given, um, sometimes there's not all the details are given. So like Proud has been given as a system, but we don't have all the details. And sometimes we're gonna have to come up with some things which weren't exactly written black and white. But when the founder is telling you, don't do something, we shouldn't do, do something which is we told we were not supposed to do. So this is one, one big, this is my biggest objection. And my second objection um, to it is that I know that many um, progressives who are concerned about, you know, the, the welfare of all are fighting for this. Um, and, and we are also in that sense that we are also in, we're progressive, we want the welfare of all people, and especially the downtrodden. But it's very bad optics if, if, we, if we, UBI is a very bad optics on our part uh, when, when some, it's welfare. Nobody likes this whole concept of handouts and welfare. That's what, in fact, that's what the, the right has fed upon this myth of you know, the welfare queen. So if we go in this direction, it's a, it's a very, it's, it's politically not a very good idea. And plus it's really not in keeping with what, what we're all about. So we have to look at UBI from this perspective of, of a new system, not from perspective of capitalism. And we see there's so many defects there. That's why I'd like to call in Michael to give his um, 
take on this and he has a background as an economist and and also we can also talk about because now in here we're saying we have to provide the and Sri Raksha has also pointed out we have to provide um, the labor so for people from their labor according to their capacity so how are we going to and we were in, we're in a world where where there is automation and there is shrinking um, um, possibilities for certain kinds of labor but I, I think there are other areas that too but so anyway these are these are problems about how we're going to do this so like they say the devil is in the details. How, how are we going to, how are we going to pull this off to provide employment for everyone and, and income for everyone who needs it? So I'd like to toss the hot potato to, to Michael to see if he can come up with something. Thank you, Dada. Uh, generally, I'm in agreement with uh, both you and uh, Sri Rakshin. Um, you know, UBI uh, is where the government pays uh, in people, uh, pays a, a minimum minimum wage. When uh, basically, when this was first attempted uh, by President uh, Nixon back in 1969, it was, I believe, somewhere around $1,600, where today, in today's money, that would be somewhere around $10,000 for, as Sri Rashini said, is like providing no production uh, for the economy. Um, so in a way that is the government paying a share of the wages that business should be paying or using the words that Adam Smith used, you know, land, labor, and capital, uh, the government is paying some of the labor that capital should be paying. Um, it's like a subsidy. It's like a subsidy to business. Uh, so there's a, a really insidious uh, aspect to that is it perpetuates low wages by the government paying effectively some of the wages. So uh, the capitalists uh, are able to make more profit, um, keep, keep more uh, profit for themselves by paying their employees less and the government basically pays, you know, some of that labor. Uh, th that's a, a pretty subtle uh, aspect. And there are many progressives that don't necessarily uh, agree with that. Uh, there are some that um, I've spoken with say they're, they're of three minds. Uh, their humanist, neo-humanist mind says everybody should be guaranteed, you know, something for their minimum necessities. Their proudest mind says that, you know, they should provide, you know, their labor, as you were saying, in exchange. And uh, a third uh, way of looking at it is a, a psychological way of looking at it. But it gets just into what you were saying about uh, the welfare and being, you know, kind of the dole, and you get into uh, the discussions, uh, the political discussions from the 1990s, the Republican revolution, you know, so to say, trying to link employment with welfare. Um, and a lot of uh, dog whistling uh, that was happening back at that time, as you said earlier, Dada, about welfare queens and you know so on and so on. Uh, so there is uh, an actual alternative to UBI, 
which is uh, the job guarantee uh, concept. Uh, if we can kind of introduce that. Um, <clears throat> since the 1970s, uh, we have had a system when the economy goes into a slump uh, that uh, the US Federal Reserve you know, raises interest rates, pardon me, lowers interest rates and uh, stimulates the economy. The, the flip side of that is when the economy's uh, over, overheated, it'll raise rates to uh, slow the economy down. And what happens is people are put into what's called involuntary unemployment. Uh, if it persists, oh, they can't pay their car payments, they can't pay their mortgage payments, uh, people remain unemployed for some time, they go through their savings and they go into uh, depression and become destitute um, and all the associated social ills. Um, so that uh, we can look at that through a particular lens. Uh, it's called a macroeconomic price anchor. Uh, there's an alternative um, to that. It's a macroeconomic price anchor of employed people where uh, there would be a program. Uh, and this is, was championed back in the 1960s by Dr. Martin Luther King among others, that we would have a program of jobs, mostly service jobs, that would pick up the slack labor during those times when the mm, capitalist system, the market-based system, if you will, was an economic slump. <clears throat> this uh, is very similar to programs that are used uh, to support agricultural and commodity prices. So it is a, uh, a macroeconomic price anchor. It is a moral alternative, an ethical alternative to the system that we currently have. And it involves the exchange of labor uh, for uh, a monetary wage. <clears throat> uh, the, the system that we currently have is, is really based on a number of... Uh, of myths, and this isn't you know, just me saying this, but the uh, U.S. Federal Reserve has you know, admitted that they really don't have a, a reliable theory of inflation. So as you were saying at the onset of the podcast about inflation, we're seeing some inflation, but it's very segmented uh, in certain sectors of the economy, it's not broad, uh, inflation, at least yet. But the uh, normal classical response is, you know, to raise interest rates. That's the response. That's the engaging of that macroeconomic price anchor that ends up with involuntary unemployment. But yet you have the U.S. Federal Reserve saying, you know, our, our theories of inflation, we don't have one. They're faulty. And this is well documented in, in, you know, in, in the literature. So we are seeing some inflation, but uh, many economists, uh, even mainstream economists are really 
urging caution about raising, raising interest rates uh, that would uh, place people into, into unemployment. Uh, we're looking for different theories. We're looking for progressive theories, uh, a job guarantee, similar to what the uh, US Federal Reserve does in a banking crisis where it comes in and acts as a, uh, a lender of last resort. <clears throat> These systems would work similar to that and they're well thought out. Uh, you know, some of the first uh, literature that came out would uh, say $15 an hour wage. Uh, they would cover these types of uh, service uh, jobs, uh, the environment, uh, teaching, um, uh, cleanup, neighborhood cleanup. Uh, there's, it's really well thought out. It hasn't run into a lot of resistance yet because it's still very, very theoretical and uh, this is a linchpin uh, theory also in some of the uh, theories to uh, tackle and trying to address uh, global warming and climate change. You know, the Green New Deal and, and issues like that. <clears throat> so with respect to UBI, uh, yes, I, I agree. There is no, generally speaking, exchange of labor uh, for you know, remuneration. There's uh, no dignity of work. Uh, there are many proposals out there that there are elements of that, but then the UBI is no longer universal as they start carving it up. Well, we're going to give it to you or to you or to you. Um, and it's no longer universal basic income. You know, this isn't uh, the first time the nation has really tried to uh, really consider uh, a universal basic income or a relief uh, for people who are uh, uh, in difficult um, straits within the economy. Richard Nixon <clears throat> originally proposed back in 1969, I believe, universal basic income. He had the support of Congress, he had the support of the Republicans, <clears throat> and was really close to this happening. And it didn't happen. And there is a very interesting story uh, involved with that. There was one man who uh, became uh, alarmed. Uh, his name is Martin Anderson. And you could do a whole podcast on, on, this, on this story. Um, but in short order, um, he wrote a paper that drew from a early 19th century event uh, in England, uh, Simpham Land uh, is what it was called. Um, and he raised the alarm that people would become, uh, they just live on the dole and they would not provide you know, uh, productive labor. The, at that time, the new, uh, so to say, the new uh, capitalists were alarmed at this. The, the upshot is, is that back in the early 1800s, the conclusion to that report was written 
before the data was fully collected. Scholars can look at that now and, and, and point to it. So as UBI progresses and we start having people coming in and, and maybe starting to challenge it, we need to keep these stories from the late 1960s in, in our mind is that they're, they're, uh, they've been tried before. And uh, we do need to provide some, some relief uh, to people. UBI could be uh, a solution if it's constructed well. I am not uh, wholeheartedly uh, in support of that. But this is, for me, this is kind of the acid test. If you look at the levels of inequality, that we have right now. Uh, and there are various measures that I'm sure many of your listeners are aware of. The Gini index, you know, being one of them, the Gini coefficient, a measure of inequality. Allianz Bank has called the United States the unequal states of America because of the levels of inequality in our nation. In the United States, Inequality measured by, by wealth, it can be measured by income or wealth, but measured by wealth is the highest of any country in the world. For me, that emphasizes the needs for these programs. And with levels of inequality, astronomical levels of inequality, uh, at those levels, we may need both types of programs job guarantees, and universal basic incomes with maybe phase-out periods. There is so much suffering, suffering among single mothers, you know, working families. Um, I, I could argue that we have a, a need for both type of programs until uh, levels of inequality uh, come down. Uh, I am uh, more sympathetic, though, towards uh, programs uh, that involve a, a work element to it. Uh, so with that, I'm going to kind of pipe down a little bit and let others speak. Yeah. Regarding um, the work, is it, did we have an interesting historical example was during the, the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt, he, he organized... Um, Civilian Conservation Corps. And what was that? That was, they built the national parks, you know, and there was something called the Works Progress um, Administration and they put people to work. And um, even today, I'm a, I'm a listener to um, Richard Wolff, who is a, he's kind of a, a social a Marxist economist, but he's, he's very, um, I, I like a lot of his proposals. And he is, he said that during the COVID crisis when people are unemployed, then we should have had people testing, they, they should be employed testing and doing all these, making the kits and doing all the things that are needed, you know, so, so there's, there's so much work to be done. And so if the, if the capitalist sector wouldn't provide this, then let the government be the employer of last resort and, and provide these, these things. This is the, uh, yes, absolutely. The, uh, uh, propounder of, of Prout, uh, Sarkar, uh, had the uh, Samaj concepts. And the job guarantee uh, 
fits very nicely within that. Uh, some of the proposals for job guarantee is they are administered at the local level. The monies, you know, flow from the federal central government to the states, from the states down to the counties and counties down to local levels. And they are administered at the local level. So if there, as you were saying, if there's a need for uh, COVID vaccination or COVID testing, uh, something along the those lines, then that fits very nicely within the WPA or the Civilian Conservation Corps uh, programs that you, know, that you were mentioning. Uh, but designed and administered locally is kind of the, 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 the key or the linchpin of that, because what, what may work in you know, Seattle, Washington, you know, isn't going to work, you know, locally in Nashville, Tennessee, or Washington, you know, DC. Uh, so designed and administered locally. Okay, good point. On, good on point. the lines of Civilian Conservation Corps, inspired by um, Franklin Roosevelt, Civilian Conservation Corps progressives are talking about Civilian Climate Corps since climate change uh, is a hot issue right now affecting every aspect of our lives. And having a Civilian Climate Corps, CCC, that would put a lot of Americans to work and help combat climate change and not just Americans to work. And um, just adding to what Michael just said, imagine every country and every locality, every community had a local CCC that is working towards one goal of sustainability and combating climate change that could create a lot many jobs and promise a better livelihood overall, not, not, in, not just in terms of economic upward mobility, but also overall good livelihood of being able to live in a better planet on a, on a better sustainable um, earth. So, yeah. Yes, uh, in, in response to that, you know, some of the uh, job guarantee or employer of last resort proposals uh, address uh, service jobs within the environment, uh, soil erosion, flood control, uh, community and rooftop gardens, tree plantings. Uh, another area of support is communities, cleaning up vacant lots, playgrounds, pedestrian areas, bike lanes, uh, and then the last being human development, uh, after school activities. Um, facilitating extended stay programs, shadowing teachers. I mean, the, the responses are limited to our creativeness. There are jobs that uh, could be created. And a word with respect to that, these aren't just make do jobs. I mean, these are really providing needed, needed services. You know, one of the responses, you know, people have to job programs is, ah, oh, you're, you're just making, you know, up stuff that really doesn't need to get done. And it's, no, it's, it's really not. It's, it's services that are desperately needed by the community. Um, and let's design stuff by the community, by the local people that they need not something from, you know, a bureaucrat up in, up in Washington. I want to say something about this. Um, you know, we're looking at, you know, one of the reasons why UBI was floated 
was because of this whole, the impending um, artificial intelligence um, crisis, meaning that what work will people do in the future? So we should look at it not from a capitalist angle, but from the angle of, of a progressive utilization theory, which we're proposing a cooperative economic system. And in the cooperative economic system, when the productivity is increasing and everything, even though we reduce the labor, we should let the income can, can increase, but let's reduce the amount of labor. Because, you know, people, we're working 40 hours a week. Even I've, I read in one report that even hunter gatherers used to work less than what we're working. You know, so, so we're working and working and science is going on and on. So do you think really it, we're going to be needing to work so much in the future? So basically, you know, the need for work as these people who are worried about AI is, is going to go down. But in a, in a proper system, what we do is we reduce the hours that people work and, and give the income to everybody. And this will, 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 um, will, will, will address this problem. And then I have another thing to say about this. Suppose um, we're living in a world where um, people only have to do five minutes of labor. Yeah, it could be, you know, don't laugh. But what will they do with their time? Okay, here's what they will do. People will learn sports. They will learn to play the piano. They will learn the arts, the fine arts. Someone has to do that. Someone has, there's so many musical teachers. There's so many artists, art teachers, and so many sports teachers. We'll have a whole sector of a different kind but it won't, maybe not producing, um, it's a, it will be a service sector, but service sector of the, the finer qualities of humans. And I think that we can keep people engaged in a nice way. And plus they will, everybody will get that standard. And in such a system too, those who cannot um, partake in these activities, society will look after them because we have enough wealth to do that. So, so if we look at it from a perspective of capitalism, then we say UBI is floated, but it's, it's really stopgap measure. And, and we doubt the, the motives of the people who are, who are um, measured. But if we look at it from a really, a, from the perspective of proud, um, then we see that we can provide employment for people and we can provide purchasing power and we can provide dignity. So this is really how I look at it. So I, I think that we can do it. That's my opinion. We know we can do it. Yes. So that will wrap up this episode of the Prout Rev podcast. And I'd like to thank our guests, Sri Raksha Mohan of Portland, Oregon, and economist Michael Zimmerman from Nashville, Tennessee, for their great contributions to this program. And for those who are listening, keep on listening and follow our podcast as it develops and subscribe on whatever platform that you're listening to it on. And we'll be back with some more commentary on current events from the perspective of the progressive utilization theory. And if you have any suggestions for future episodes or any comments which you think you would like to share with us, you can send an email to info at proutalliance.org. 
And if you want to know more about the progressive utilization theory and, and what it's all about, visit our websites, proudalliance.org and proud.info. That's P-R-O-U-T. And then you can find more about us. So thank you very much for listening, and we hope to be in contact with you again very soon.